Thanks for listening to Resilient History, the podcast that seeks to examine ignored, forgotten, and partially told history. In this episode, we explore the intentionally bypassed and frequently oversimplified role accorded Africa in the creation of the modern world. I'm your host, Gordon Black. Joining me is Howard French, a former bureau chief of the New York Times, two-time Pulitzer Prize nominee, and since 2008, professor of journalism at Columbia University. He writes a weekly column for World Politics Review, drawing on his deep experience as a foreign correspondent and bureau chief reporting from Central America and the Caribbean, West Africa, and Asia. French is the author of five books, and he's here to talk about his most recent, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World. Howard French, it's an honor to have you as a guest. Welcome. Thank you, Gordon. It's great to be with you. Your book spans what historians call the modern era, the roughly 600 years said to begin with the Age of Discovery. Share with me how you came to recognize that so much of the history built around the Age of Discovery and the narrative about the West's dominance is incomplete at best and at worst, outright wrong. Uh, thank you. That's a great place to begin. I came upon this idea really uh, somewhat by accident. I mean, the themes of the book uh, intersect with a lot of my life experience as a reporter. But in terms of my reading of history, I undercovered some things in the research of a previous book, my immediate previous book, which is called Everything Under the Heavens and is deals with uh, China's conception of itself as a global power or as a, a major power over uh, many ages. And in the research for that book, I dwelled quite extensively in the archives, uh, reading into uh, the 15th and 16th centuries of um, Portuguese exploration. And as I did that, I discovered for the first time uh, that Portugal had, quite contrary to what we're usually taught, dwelled in sub-Saharan Africa for the purposes of exploration for quite an extended period of time before even proceeding on to Asia. Uh, and this was stunning to me because I think that the conventional narrative of how the modern world begins cuts Africa completely out of the story um, and says that it was a mere obstacle, that Africa needed to be, the Europeans were trying to figure out how, whether Africa extended infinitely and how to get around it. And, uh, and this all presents Africa as having no inherent interest or merit or or wealth or civilizations of its own. And in these archives, working on that very different topic, I discovered that contemporaneous writing by Europeans uh, in the late 1400s and, and through the 16th century, meaning into the 1500s, couldn't have contradicted that more bluntly. And so this is what puts me onto the story. And as you know, but as those who haven't read the book wouldn't know, after I finished that book and began researching this story, what I uncovered was that other elements of the story of how the modern world began were equally false or sort of oddly off-center. And not to sort of um, give you a long uh, summary of the book right here at the outset, the principal thing at the very beginning of this history is that um, the Europeans, and especially the Portuguese, for reasons particular to themselves, very young, very weak, very poor kingdom, were desperate to find sources of gold in sub-Saharan Africa. And so after long decades of pursuit, totally obsessed with Africa, they finally arrive at a place that's located in modern Ghana, which they called Elmina, 
which revolutionized their economy, created new circuits of trade within important new circuits of trade within Europe, and set Portugal up to become the great exploring power and expansionist power that we know it to be. But those subsequent things only happen after three very important decades of almost monomaniacal engagement with Africa. So you've come through archives on three continents to research this book. Did you ever wonder why no historians have taken this approach before? I don't have a definitive answer to that. It's it's very puzzling to me. I guess an overarching theme of my book, because I, as you said, it covers six centuries, and I proceed from era to era during that span. The consistent thread that runs through the entire six centuries is that Africa and Africans were doing extremely important things in terms of the creation of the West, in terms of propelling a kind of divergence between Europe at first, but then subsequently what I'm calling the West, meaning Europe and the continental Americas. Secondly, putting them on a higher plane in terms of wealth and power compared to China or India, which were the great civilizational centers of wealth in the preceding eras. Uh, and that Africa was a, a major part of that. At each stage in these 600 years of history, Africa and Africans, because the Africans part includes, of course, the people who were trafficked across the Atlantic in chains as enslaved uh, workers. So my tentative answer, the only tentative answer that I can give to you, uh, to your question really is that the horror that attaches to the transatlantic slave trade is so unreal. It's so extraordinary uh, that for essentially reasons of self-respect and for lack of a better word, psychology, Europeans and their legatees, if you will, um, meaning European Americans, uh, found it important to write the the horror out of the story. Uh, and so writing the horror out of the story meant maintaining this pretense that Africa and Africans really were never, yes, it's true, they suffered, horrible things happened, etc. I'm deliberately putting that in a passive voice, by the way, uh, because that's the way these histories have often been written. But in fact, if you look deeply into it, as the conventional narratives go, and Africa and Africans were never big players in the big scheme of things. They were never part of the, the history making at the at the top table, if you will. You've touched upon dominant Europeans conquer indigenous people in the Americas, exploit them and the resources, then the Europeans enslave Africans as a replacement source of labor. That's kind of the conventional telling of how the modern world of transatlantic slave trade came into place. And how do you begin to correct that? The first problem is we've sort of the conventional narrative has nothing to do either with discovering sources of wealth in Africa or exploiting human beings from Africa. It has to do with pursuit of maritime connections with Asia in which Africa was considered a mere obstacle, right? And so that's wrong. And that's the foundation of the entire story. Uh, and so, as I say in the very first lines of my book, it's hard to imagine how you wind up in the right place in the history of the world if you don't start at the right place, right? And so there's that. The second thing is that there's African agency throughout uh, this entire story of 600 years, uh, and that starts right from the beginning. The Europeans become obsessed with connecting with Africa and not, as it is told, with Asia because of uh, important actions taken by Africans in the 14th century, early 14th century, from the Kingdom of Mali, traveling, most importantly, traveling to uh, Cairo and Mecca, a king or emperor named Mansa Musa from that empire, 
uh, brings 18 tons of gold with him, uh, which he distributes in acts of uh, patronage and of religious devotion. And this craters the price of gold on markets in the Mediterranean and beyond. And so this lights a fire in the imaginations of the Europeans, telling them they must find a way to connect with this kingdom, discover its location and reach it somehow, right? So that's the second piece of this. The third piece of this has to do with the reality of the nature of wealth creation through enslavement, which you touched upon in your question. This is also skimmed over. Um, the most important stories, the most famous stories of wealth creation in the early modern age that we have in the conventional narratives is of Spanish conquest, that the conquistadors uh, ride on horseback into you know, mountainous areas of great kingdoms in, in Mexico and in South America, and they conquer them at, against great odds, and they plunder them of their gold and silver, and they have to create an, an entirely new class of ship to cart all of this uh, wealth and precious metals back to Europe and later to Asia because it was so abundant, right? And that ship is called the Galleon, right? And so the, this is a very famous centerpiece story in the conventional narrative of the modern world, the Galleon trade. I don't mean to say that Europeans and especially the Spanish did not reap huge rewards from the Galleon trade, but the fact is that enslavement of Africans from a very early date was already more important in terms of generating wealth for Europe. So we first see this in Brazil, uh, which uh, Portugal, I'm going to use air quotes here, discovers at the turn of the 16th century, and having just invented a new form of exploitation of human labor on an island off Africa called Sao Tome. This new form of labor we know of typically uh, under the name of the plantation. I call it actually a prison uh, industrial labor camp uh, where people in bondage uh, are worked in transgenerational slavery that uh, is uh, conducted on, on a racial basis. This is a new thing in world history, right? And so this transits the Atlantic, the, the Portuguese, for, at first in Brazil, they try to exploit the native population that doesn't work out uh, for a variety of reasons, but the most important one is because of uh, epidemiology. The native population has no resistance to diseases from the other hemisphere, and so they die out in extraordinary numbers. And by mid-century, the Portuguese are mid, meaning the mid-1500s, the Portuguese are beginning to bring important numbers of Africans across the Atlantic to work in sugar plantations. By 1570 or thereabouts, the labor force in these, I'm calling them plantations, I want the listener to imagine air quotes because I don't like this term. I think it is a, a euphemism. But for expediency's sake, let's call it a plantation. These plantations by the 1570s are entirely manned by Africans brought across the Atlantic. Uh, and by the 1630s, the Brazilian production of sugar is generating more wealth for Portugal than the Spanish galleons are bringing back in terms of gold and silver. In 1630, the English repeat this feat and set themselves up on Barbados, which had been an unoccupied island in the southern reaches of the Caribbean. And in a very short period of time, uh, historically speaking, meaning a few decades, the English are themselves reaping more money from the production of sugar uh, through prison industrial labor camps on this island using African labor than the Spanish had reaped from the galleon trade. We've kept out of the traditional narrative this extraordinarily generative source of wealth that was based in human exploitation. And uh, there are many facets to this, but one of the most fascinating for me that I write about in the book, which 
which I had never heard of before I undertook this project, uh, involves the extraordinary transformations that all of this wealth uh, brings about in Europe itself, starting with England. And so because of the sudden availability of uh, tropical products produced under this prison industrial labor camp system, the workplace in England is completely transformed. And with that, very soon thereafter, English society is completely transformed. Why the workplace? Because clean water was not widely available or reliably available in England in this age. And so people drank ale during the daytime, not because they were undisciplined, but because it was safe. It was hygienic to drink ale. Uh, and so this produced torpor, if not drunkenness, and lower productivity. And suddenly you have the availability of coffee, a slave-produced product, sweetened by sugar, a slave-produced product. All of this increases alertness, as, every, as any listener will know. People no longer are drinking ale in the workplace. They're working much longer workdays, producing much more labor in England. It's just changing everything in that society. And then end this very long answer with the final sort of re reveal in terms of this transformative experience. In 1650, in Oxford, the first coffee house is created, uh, and these spread like wildfire through England. With the creation of the coffee house comes another industry, the industry that has created my career, the newspaper industry. Some uh, unknown entrepreneurs uh, observed in England that people in London, that people are sitting around engaged in animated conversation, but sober conversation about the affairs of the day in England. And if if somebody could merely sell them a sheet with the news of shipping arrivals from other European countries or of the day's events in Parliament, they could make a lot of money. This is the birth of the newspaper industry, as we know it, in all of Europe. And beyond that, it's the birth of an idea that sort of becomes a foundational moment in English democracy. This is a critical period in the development of democracy in England, wherein people as a, a fruit of the idea of citizenship becomes the notion of a right to information and a right to free speech, meaning free discussion about the affairs of their country. For the first time in England, these rights become associated with ordinary citizenry. And these are all byproducts of things happening on the other side of the Atlantic via the slave industrial prison complex that I've talked about, i.e. the plantation. And all of this has been written out of the traditional accounts of this history. It's, we're meant to believe that these are due simply to the innate virtues of people in the old world, so to speak. I teach world history. I teach the age of discovery. And over the last few years, I've attempted to take a broader approach to how I teach it. But I came away thinking there is a giant hole in terms of my understanding as a world history teacher of the role of gold, the Mansa Musa story, the 18 tons of gold to Cairo. That's a great story. And of course, historians love a good story, but somehow that's a tale that isn't really making it into history text. Then the next observation I made was the role of sugar. And sure, we know about the role of cotton and the use of enslaved people in the American South, the beginning of industrialization in England, but much less is said about the role of sugar. But that was really what triggered this global trade, this commodity trade that brought lots of wealth to European countries. And I couldn't help but wonder, why have these two important aspects just been left out? 
These are wonderful questions, and I, I really appreciate your spirit in terms of uh, being a, a teacher of history, uh, you know, willing to, uh, you don't have to take me as the final word. Um, I don't ask that of anyone, but willingness to read a book like this and to begin asking questions of your own like that. I think that that is, that is fundamental. Uh, and that's the sort of beginning of the answer to how we fix this situation. Even if people don't all entirely end up on the same page, so to speak, on every point that I make. You know, sugar, it's puzzling to me how badly, I mean, there are many things that are puzzling to me in terms of how badly the con we have missed the reality of this history in our conventional accounts. But, but sugar is a particularly strong example for this. If you think about the way sugar uh, begins to be produced in the early 1500s, first on Sao Tome, then in Brazil, then in Barbados, and then it makes this long arc up the Caribbean ending in, in Haiti uh, or in Saint-Domingue, the name of the French colony prior to the Haitian Revolution, right? What you see really are obvious, strong precursors to what we understand as industrialization. These are enormous work sites, much bigger, even in the early days in Sao Tome, a little tiny island, much bigger than typical work sites in Europe. Uh, there were not extensive agricultural operations and there were not ex extensive, let's call them industrial operations, even artisanal operations in Europe at, in that age, which compared in terms of the number of employees, right? But it's more than just the number of employees. It's the specialization of tasks. It's the synchronizing of roles where timing is really important. It's the supervision. It's the accounting in terms of bookkeeping of who's doing this, who's doing that, you know, measuring productivity. All of these things are happening in the sugar economies of the places I've just mentioned, and they are just obvious. I use the word precursors, but that's, that's a little too weak. They are leading the way toward a kind of organization of the workplace that makes what we normally call uh, industrialization kind of obvious. Yeah, why wouldn't you produce textiles that way or produce eventually automobiles that way? I mean, these are the, the foundations of, of these complicated modern processes all lie in the slave industrial prison camp system. So in some ways, this is a direct relationship to industrialization of anything around the world. And I would make an additional point to that, and that is that in the 19th century, you know, cotton starts in the United States in the 1790s, a product that produced at a level of something like 11,000 bales, uh, meaning almost nothing uh, in the early 1790s. By the breakout of the Civil War in 1865 in the United States, the Old South is producing 2 billion pounds of cotton a year right? This is a phenomenal growth. It's astronomical, actually, right? I was stunned to learn, as other historians who I draw upon discovered before me, that the productivity of cotton production in this prison industrial labor camp system is growing in lockstep with the productivity of in industrialization in England. In other words, the slave plantations of the Mississippi Valley especially are increasing in output and in efficiency and in productivity of their cotton through these, what we are calling industrial processes, even though they're taking place in an agricultural environment, right? Every bit as fast as the output is growing and the productivity is growing in the Lancashire region of England where the textiles are booming. And this has gone, you know, outside of a few 
specialists who have noted this almost entirely unnoticed, right? We have this glorious tale about the outbreak of industrialization in England. And of course, this was a truly earth shattering event in world history, but we have somehow masked or from view the fact that this was entirely dependent on equally surprising efficiencies taking place across the Atlantic uh, through the exploitation of human beings under the circumstances we've just discussed, right? Without which there couldn't have been textiles. There's no textiles without cotton. Somehow we've ended up missing rather obvious questions, um, addressing rather obvious questions as we speak, as we sort of tell the rote versions that we have of this history. Uh, that, of course, would explain why the Confederacy of the South was hoping that Great Britain would back them in the Civil War, because Great Britain was so dependent on the supply of Southern cotton for its economy. Yes, that's true. Um, and it was it was dependent on more than just the supply of cotton, as important as that was. You know, Great Britain had famously ended slavery in its colonies in 1833, and back then and even today has sought uh, to take great kind of uh, rhetorical advantage from this, you know, making this a centerpiece of its own national identity, its own national story, that that we were the great uh, leaders in the abolishment of slavery. It's true that they were leaders in the abolishment of slavery. What they don't say, first of all, almost ever, is that they had been the leaders for the last 125 years in slavery, and that even after they abolished slavery in 1833 in their Caribbean possessions, they were the biggest investors, not just depending on the supply of cotton from plantations in the Mississippi Valley. They were the biggest foreign investors in the cotton economy, investing in plantations, investing in banking, investing in insurance, investing in uh, transoceanic shipping, investing across the board and profiting hugely from this. And in fact, some of the families in Britain compensated hugely after the 1833 abolition of slavery, immediately got into ancillary industries in the United States that involve slavery in order to supply this vital input to the nascent British industry of, of textiles. The scholarship of the last 20 years has sought to peel back some of these layers that have been obscured about the connections, aspects of slavery, aspects of economic history, and that's everything from the revelations about Jefferson's sexual relationships with Sally Hemings to the profits that many institutions gained from the slave trade or ancillary activities. Do you think we can expect to see more of this type of scholarship in the next few years? I think it's more or less inevitable. And the reason for that is there has been so much energy expended in the last, let's say, 200 years in avoiding the less pleasant aspects of this history, less pleasant vis-a-vis -vis European identity, European self-image, European self-worth, right? And, and let me just pause to say, I'm not here to attack Europeans. That's not the point of this observation. I think that there's something common in every civilization anywhere in the world where people seek the explanations of their own successes in their own virtue to the expense of anything that could um, sully uh, that idea of virtue. At base, there's nothing really unusual about what we've seen over the last few hundred years with Europe. You know, all the great stories of the Protestant work ethic or the Judeo-Christian ideals or about how capitalism or how democracy did this or that for, for European civilizations. All of those things are true, but they have crowded out other sources of understanding for our success on this 
universally human kind of uh, basis where you know let's look for explanations in our own positives uh, and and not consider the murky uh, downsides of our own behavior and so since since we have seen such across the board efforts like that for so long it's inevitable that as uh, scholars kind of begin to scratch more deeply beneath the surface they're going to turn up uh, stories that offer different perspectives. And there's reaction to this. People, a lot of people don't like it. There has been a strong reaction in the United States. There's one underway right now with, you know, various state legislatures saying you can't teach things that, in it, this isn't their wording, right? But I'm going to paraphrase that sort of insult the reputations of our founding, founding fathers or of white identity, uh, right? So this is a struggle. But I think the arc is moving in the right direction. Is part of the debt that Europe and the Americas owes Africa a fuller acknowledgement of Africa's role in the world? Does that begin to address this cover-up, if you will, or a lack of acknowledgement of the place, the rightful place of Africa? Yes. I mean, I, I think that that is absolutely called for. It's absolutely necessary, overdue, right? And there are a couple of other things that I would say to that uh, to the question, though. And one of them is that part of this history has involved through a variety of means, both direct and indirect, of uh, Europeans and of their Western Hemisphere descendants, meaning uh, American elites, inculcating Africans, first of all, persuading other Europeans not to, be to believe that Africans have never been responsible for anything important in history, right? But then associated with that, inculcating Africans and people of African descent to also believe uh, that they have made no contribution. And I think that this has been very damaging in terms of the spirit of the black diaspora around the Atlantic. Uh, don't think about Africa as a source of pride. Don't think of your blackness as a source of pride. There's nothing to be proud of. Uh, the only thing to be happy about is that you were able to sort of be absorbed into this great Atlantic civilization, which is a kind of a synonym in its typical usage for European civilization, right? And I think that's been very damaging. Um, let me just add one more thing here, Gordon, and that is it's not going to be possible to ignore Africa very much longer going forward. And that isn't bound up in so much in the history we've been discussing, but it's bound up in demographics, right? Africa's demography, as I discuss in the book, was quite seriously depressed because of the effects of the transatlantic slave trade, which went on for such a long time. And the headline number is 12.5 million people brought across, landed from across the uh, ocean into the Americas. But that ignores many millions of other peoples who died in the processes that ginned up or generated this human traffic. And this suppressed Africa's population quite seriously in the modern age. Africa's population is rebounding now. Uh, and it is changing at a galloping pace. Africa's population is going to double to about 2.5 billion people by the middle of this century, which is quite close. Uh, and then could be by the end of this century, somewhere between three and five billion. We have habits of mind which have which date back a very long time, which encourage us not to think about Africa or at all, or to think about it as not a very important place. But I have news for people who are inclined to have that kind of mental laziness. Africa's coming. Uh, we don't know exactly what form it's going to come in, but Africa's coming in terms of a demographic wave that's going to affect everyone everywhere, whether you like it or not. Uh, and so it's maybe a good time to be thinking about these things and to be thinking about how to engage the continent and to understand its history better.
you have family connections in Ghana. Do you get a sense from speaking to Ghanaians that they have a well-rounded sense of the history of the place like Elmira, or has that been shaded by the traditional narrative that has been pervaded in the West? Um, no, I think that um, uh, Ghanaians uh, in, in particular and West Africans uh, in general don't have I'm making a broad generalization here, so I want to be careful, right? There are, of course, very well-educated people in, you pick any of these countries, who who have a lot to say uh, uh, and could teach me a lot about this history, right? But in general, uh, I think the populations of this region have a very poorly informed uh, view of this history. Uh, you asked me about Elmina, the city uh, in Ghana where the Portuguese first discover huge amounts of gold in 1471. You know, there's a, a gigantic uh, fortified structure there, locally called a castle, right, which is a bit ironic, but which is famous and is a, a site of a lot of tourism even now as a slave trading center. And it is true that in the 1600s, Elmina and uh, nearby sites in Ghana become quite important sources of slaves into this new world traffic, right? However, um, most Ghanaians have no idea that starting in 1471 and up until 1650, Elmina was essentially a source of gold trade and that that's what drew Europeans there and that this gold trade set all of the things we've been talking about in motion and it completely changed Portugal, turned Portugal in the space of a blink of time from a a weak and almost defenseless kingdom, almost certainly liable to be reabsorbed by Spain into a major player in the modern age and a leader in the age of discovery. None of those things would have happened without Elmina, right? Most people in Ghana don't know that, never heard of that. Uh, uh, one of my many wishes uh, in relation to this book is that uh, some of these lessons can be diffused uh, and spread within West Africa in ways that will uh, encourage a reappraisal of this history there too. To a teacher listening and learning about how much has been completely ignored about the role of Africa and Africans in shaping the modern world, what's your advice on becoming better informed? The one lesson that stands out for me involves the way I discovered this narrative, the beginnings of this story the, in the first place. In other words, the, the origins of the age of discovery and the gold in West Africa. And that is Anytime you encounter a pat narrative, question it. It's not necessarily going to be false, but every pat narrative is like a big fat candidate for new exploration and uh, skeptical questions, right? Uh, because most pat narratives, if not completely wrong, are at least somewhat off or or just too encrusted in the byways of storytelling. Uh, and that this means that important details, even if it's not completely off, as so many of the things that we've been discussing have been, are just ripe for uh, renewed investigation and for some degree of correction, right? And so that's what I would encourage teachers of history and people who would like to write history. Uh, pat narratives are your friends, right? Because everyone knows the pat narratives. That's what it means to be a pat narrative. And they are just ideal targets for renewed exploration. Uh, and there's always new discovery to be made there. 
Howard French, thank you so much for your time today. One final question before we wrap this up, which is, will you be heading back to West Africa anytime soon? Yes, I'm going to Ghana this summer. Um, I'm, I'm working on a new book. Um, it's not that I'm obsessed with Ghana. I, I have a life a long time. I wanted to say lifelong. It's not quite true, but very long time uh, attachment to Ghana. But but it's really uh, sort of much more accidental than it might sound. Uh, my next book, which I'm researching now, is about the age of decolonization. Um, and Ghana plays a very particular role in the story of decolonization. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, the first president of Ghana, was uh, the first leader in sub-Saharan Africa to take his country out of out from under European colonization in 1957. Uh, and Africa, although India becomes the first big story of decolonization in 1947, Africa is the continent where, which has by far the largest number of decolonizing countries. And so, so this story about African decolonization and especially of Ghana's place in this history is very important to my bigger narrative. I look forward to reading that. In fact, uh, I'm looking forward to reading your book about China as well. Gordon, it's been a great pleasure talking with you.